Oh, Ben Vigil, smart guy. These are your friends for the rest of your life. Sell to the rich, live with the poor. That's incredibly sensible. You didn't sell out, you bought in. Let's give that boy a sense of occasion. Welcome back to... Buckle up, baby. Episode 35, <laughs> take it away, Michael. Um, oh, wow, okay, we're gonna do it like that. We have a special guest here today, Ben Vigo. How y'all doing? Um... Ben, I don't know much about you. Um, I don't know the details of your life. So that wrote, surprises me a little bit. Well, well, I wrote a little biography of what I think your life was. So I thought we could start there and then you could correct us and we'll, we'll move on from there. Does that work? I'm excited. All right. <laughs> Michael, what is this? What is this sorcery? <laughs> Go ahead. Benjamin Robert Vigo was born in the 1950s to a wealthy merchant and was raised at the exact midway point between the Upper West Side and the Upper East Side. After serving his country as a pilot, he enrolled in rabbinical school and held a position as the campus rabbi at a well-regarded university in French Canada. It was there that he met his wife, who encouraged him to leave the rabbinate and to make more money. (laughs) He went on to become the oldest person to graduate Cardoza Law School and thereafter took a job as a document reader at a prestigious white shoe law firm. He was the first and last Jew they ever hired. After an unremarkable decade as an attorney, Mr. Vago became disenchanted with the dress code. He dreamed of wearing double-breasted suits with fat ties and vintage hats, and thus decided to hang his own shingle as an eccentric real estate guy. I like it. Today, he is an incredibly successful broker who specializes in helping Orthodox Jews sell small buildings in order to buy larger buildings, which he then sells for even larger buildings. Ben's dream is to one day help someone from the five towns buy the largest building in the world. Great stuff. I'm very impressed. Is that? How close was I? <laughs> Pretty good. I mean, I wasn't born in the 1950s. My father was, but that was close. My uncle's name is Robert. Um, do you think I'm from Manhattan? <laughs> I don't know where you're from. But I, no, I, I'm, do you remember in high school when you bullshit your way through a paper? Yeah, that and, was like, good. try to make it sound souped up? That's what that was. It had just enough of the spark notes. That was my high school education. Yeah. <laughs> but not, not accurate. It wasn't so It was great. Yeah. Even better than what I, what I could have come up with. Where did no. you grow up? Ben Vago, <laughs> Esquire, Rabbi, Extraordinaire. Tell the world who you are, for real. Sure. Not the fake news. Go ahead. So, um, so, so I, was, I was born and raised in New Rochelle, but a oh. lot of people think I'm from Manhattan. Actually, in college, people thought I was from Montreal because I had a cousin from there. Um, and I used to hang out with, uh, with a lot of Montrealers. So it's, it's, it's funny that um, I'm actually not from the city, but really, I, for whatever reason, people always thought I was from the city. Maybe I gave off that vibe. You do. Oh, very, very urban much. vibe. You yeah. give very off much. like a uh, sort of art-centric uh, city-file Cosmopolitan. Guy. I appreciate, I appreciate you are, it. You are a cosmopolitan. I appreciate it. My father was a merchant, so, you know, he was like one of those old Jewish, you no, know, I metals and minerals yeah. traders that a lot of people did. <laughs> you completely that, 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 was good. that was a spark notes that was luck good. of the draw, um, I guess. I love the West Side. I, I went to elementary school yeah. starting in fifth grade in the city, so I guess I always kind of had... Or, or, you know, but no you one from New Rochelle wears pants that tight and blazers like that. It's you're a city guy. That's true. Heart. Yeah, you, and I did socialize with a lot of city you people have like in the, high school. The intellect of an Upper West Side person with the uh, the appreciation for materialism of an Upper East Side person. I say that as a compliment. I appreciate like, it. You appreciate fine things. It's a disease. Yeah. It's a disease. Liking nice things is an absolute disease. I do want to. Do- I didn't. I do <laughs> want to definitely dive deep into that addiction of fashion and clothes yeah. for you because yeah. I find that really fascinating because I don't know anyone else like that. But that's your vice and your passion all wrapped into one. Clothing addiction. That's right. right. Yeah. So, so, so all joking aside, but we asked Ben on because he's a very creative person. Um, he has like an Instagram account with like a lot of followers. Like he's a content creator. He has like serious passions on the creative side and a serious career. I want to say not on the creative side. And I want to hear you talk about whether I'm right or wrong about that and, and how you chose that and what all that's like. And Is a lot that, of judgment, which it. I like. I love the, I like Ben's judgment on things like <laughs> yes. take, a lot of takes. I have a lot of opinions. I have a lot of opinions. I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to hold them back because um, sometimes, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So just to set it up a little bit, you have kind of bounced around between various professions and endeavors, a lot of which are the approved ones in the Jewish community that we're from, which is interesting. Um, But talk to us about the path of where you saw yourself going, what got you into certain things, and then what took you out of them to the next thing. I try to think about what I 
thought of myself, let's say, as a 15, 16-year-old that I wanted to do, my friends always called me the doctor or mm-hmm. the professor for, for whatever reason. Um, and I kind of always loved academia or that really that's, you know, the, the idea of being an expert in something and be able to wear, you know, a tweed jacket to kind of, you're kind of like an aristocrat, you know, you don't make the most money, but you get respect and you have a good life. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm being, a, I'm being like an academic. That. Yeah. Where you're yeah. like adjacent to the, the prosperous life. Yeah. yeah you're, and you're actually valued based on not just how much money you make, right. but you're valued based on your contribution to something. You're, yeah. It's like the arts. There's a lot of status con- to it. Yeah, there is status. So maybe yeah, I was, right. you know, drawn to that. But then I guess when I was in college and when I was thinking about my summers and all your friends are working at Goldman Sachs, just in that, the things that I loved doing was like, informal education. I was really involved in Jewish education, spending summer in Melbourne, Australia, running informal educational seminars or with, you know, in Belarus and doing things like that. Like that's like what I was really passionate about. And the idea of like going and sitting in an office. I remember my father used to always make me before camp, like that week before school and camp, he used to go to his office. I went to his office in Midtown, right near Grand Central. And I did like very menial things. I remember sometimes even like scraping crap off of windows or just like, you know, working on whatever the new uh, speed dial intercom system and just that feeling of like 2 30 3 p.m being in that cubicle looking around just feeling like other boredom of like is this day ever going to get by and i just had that feeling and that memory in my head and everyone's going and doing these office things and i'm just like i don't want to do that i want to do something that i feel really passionate about at the time i really thought that no matter what you do if you're good at it you'll earn a living. Mm-hmm. You're a teacher. You could be a principal. You're a plumber. You're an electrician. You could have an amazing business. You, you're a pool guy. You could have a whole pool business. So I thought like- I can see you as a pool guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we won't get into it. Keep going. <laughs> so I was like, you know, I'm just going to do what I'm really passionate about. And to me, at the time, education, education really felt something that I was really- Something that, that passed really the loved. day with pleasure. Yeah, because mm. I, I, I loved it. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go to rabbinical school because that's the best degree to get in order to be an educator. And I kind of thought, you know, what I really wanted to do was I wasn't going to be like an Orthodox Jewish educator in a Jewish school or an Orthodox public rabbi. But it was either going to be like a, teaching at like a community day school or Hillel. And I just loved Hillel work. Working with college students, when you think about mm-hmm. it, you're helping them figure out how they want to be Jewish on their own terms. It's not like, oh, it has to be this way. We called it like self-authorship. Like you're giving them the tools to create their own narrative. When you think mm-hmm. about it, it's actually very creative work. Think about it almost like, like sculpting. You're looking at this whole body of work, all these texts and, you know, all these narratives, and you're kind of shaping it in order to fit someone else's story. You're, 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 you're shaping it and you're looking at it and carving it out to have a more contemporary or universal message that's actually relevant to people's lives. So to me, that was something that was truly, truly exciting. So I did that for, uh, I guess, three years. So in your rabbinic yeah. vision, you go to rab, uh, rabbinical school in, and see the Hillel as your end goal of, being, of a place where you could really do something fulfilling that you felt was a match for what you were into. Yes. But something interesting just about, I give, this is the one piece of advice I give to everyone in any career advice. It's yeah. not about what job you're doing now. So what's the next job? You always have to be thinking about what's next. When you don't have an answer to what's next, solo you podcast. Have to start, <laughs> you have to really start thinking. So yeah, Hillel work was going to be exciting to be a rabbi or to yeah, eventually move on to be uh, to be a uh, you know to be a to be a director. Um, so I did that. I was like, what's my next thing? Am I just going to move from place to place, mm-hmm. or am I going to move up and then be like, I don't want to do this? Or what do you do after all of that? Mm-hmm. And I was single at the time, so I could really do whatever I want. I made enough money doing that work to you know, to be happy, to have what I needed. But then I did, I, you know, I got married. I was 30 years old living in Montreal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Montreal's a cool city. Um, oui, oui. And uh, <laughs> it was like, you know, what's, what's that next thing? I wasn't really sure what the next thing was mm-hmm. in that space. So actually what I wanted to do and what felt so fulfilling became to be actually a bit stifling. And that's a very bad feeling. It's a very bad mm-hmm. feeling where... Being a rabbi on campus felt stifling? Is that what you mean? Just the career of being a Jewish professional and doing that for the rest of my life. It's right. like, do I want to do this when I'm 45 or 50? Mm-hmm. How many jaded teachers do you know? Your teacher, oh, they're 25-year-old teacher. They're so enthusiastic. Next thing you know, they're doing the same thing and they're 45 and they're having a hard time paying their bills. And you're like, oh, where do they wish they were right now? Mm. Right. Know? Well, maybe you could speak to this because I feel like the one area of professional options in the Jewish community that sort of gets a pass in terms of the financial pressure is education and 
and going to the rabbinate, like there is, like you said, like you saw, you could be a you could be a principal. You could have made, like the pressures of making a living. Oftentimes, I feel like creative endeavors like music, film, writing, uh, comedy, those kinds of things get the most amount of concern are met with the most amount of resistance. Um, but Jewish education, like teaching the rabbinate, things like that, there's there's something that is respected, even if it's not necessarily at you're gonna not gonna necessarily be the biggest. Uh, uh, money maker in your community, but you could you could you could get by in different ways. I don't know. Can you speak to that pressure? Was that there, or did you find that it was encouraged? I mean, there's always something that you can do as an educator. There's a job that you can have multiple jobs, right? You could do a side hustle and yes. a camp. Some of the real creative work, a lot of it is kind of all or nothing, don't you think? It's like either you make it big, or it goes like nowhere. And then you do that for five years, and next thing you know, you're you're in law school. It's like it's kind of it's yeah. kind of like hit it big. I mean, big. the binary is different. It's more about a long game. It's not right. like either you're going nowhere or you're huge. That's sort of the mindset that we're, we were put on to say like some people make it because clearly they do, but right, we obviously. don't understand the path to get there. It's less of a binary thing where either you're failing or you're not. You're kind of failing and failing and failing up right. into uh, gradually less failing the, until you're a sculpture. Right. So you're 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 you know like you said you're you're hacking away at it. What we talk about here something. is I think the, the difference between the way we grew up. The way we grew up is what you said, but but the difference is someone who doesn't make it after 5 years says right. all right, I gave it a shot. Yeah. I'm going to law school. The people who do make it are the ones who go okay, let me adapt and figure out how to how can I keep doing this for the next 15 years sure. until I have a career. Yeah. Um, yeah. but but I definitely hear where you're coming from, but uh, yeah, of course he has a different I think what you're, what you're alluding to is there's something noble about working in, in the Jewish community. So you feel like even if it's not the most lucrative, you're getting the support from your family, right. your friends. I'm asking if that know. is the case, because did you feel a pressure to be more career oriented or, you know, to, to compete on that level? Because our, our community has a lot of pressure involved in making a right. lot of money and doing real just Understandably, it's an expensive right. life. Yeah, and so I wonder what the, what, what the experience is for someone who started in education and now mm -hmm. is doing yeah. other things. But starting in education, did you find a how that was received? Well, you mentioned status also. Did, did you find yourself like you were an educator and you didn't actually have that status that you had... that you were looking for? And what, did that become less important to you? Or I, don't th I, I think I wasn't really thinking about that so much. If I did okay. stick with it, I think I was going to do a PhD. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And then I could kind of like be an adjunct professor and kind of get that, mm -hmm. uh, that excitement or, you know, what I was looking for out of that. And then also be like a Hill director. Right. And I was going to look at some type of hybrid so, model between the two to kind of make it, make it work. So it wasn't coming from outside pressure. It wasn't it was outside inside. pressure. Because also you have to realize like when you're 25, so your friends are still in law school, still in medical right. school. Or maybe they work at Bear Stearns and they made a hundred grand with a bonus. They weren't like at the level and then it yet. Collapsed. So yeah, it wasn't. It, it wasn't like there was such a a big difference. That's all I know. What's the extent of my a, knowledge about finance? I also yeah. always felt like I'm doing this now. Yeah. Like I'm single in my 20s. Mm -hmm. I'm just not there. I don't want to do something corporate. I just didn't see it. But yeah. you know what? Maybe when I get older. I'll do something else. And yeah. we, we definitely grew up with this idea, which was really our parent generation. Like, whatever you're going to do, yeah. that's what you're going to do. Yeah. And you got to make that decision. But I don't know if I ever really felt that. Right. You know, to but the same something extent. that you've done that's admirable is you've been able to say, you know what? This was good for what it was. And now I'm going to do something else. And I remember even hearing, you know, the bagels in law school now? Yeah. And I'm like, really? That's out of, that's out of order. Yeah. In my head, you're taught, like, you got to do it this certain way. And you're like, nah, I'm going to go to law school now and try this. In other words, like, you have, like, a honorable dilettante quality of not being afraid to try something else that interests you, but still taking each endeavor pretty seriously. The right. honorable dilettante. I like that. I, I mean, like now, that. Yeah, now it's all circular. Like, I feel like what I do is a combination <laughs> of, of both. But the law school is funny because everyone told me, like, dude, you're going to hate law school. Mm -hmm. You're going to hate it. You really want to be a lawyer? Like, you want to be, like, someone's bitch? Like, you... you <laughs> You, you don't want to be in that type of structure. Mm. And I kind of felt like, you know what? If you make enough money or if you like the colleagues and you're, you're fulfilled and you have your family life, like it'll, it'll be okay. Mm. You know, but if you like suits, so you, the show. Exactly. So, so you went to law school just because you wanted to open up your options to do something that you were going to, could be passionate about long-term. I, I think for me it was like, okay, I'm 30 years old. Mm -hmm. I'm doing this. Now, if I want to do something more corporate. So I was really ready at that point to make that transition. It was like, you know what? Um, was the rabbi, funny. sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Was the rabbi hat you were wearing, wearing on you in any particular way? It was. Being a professional Jew is, is, is actually very tiresome. I don't mm -hmm. know how much you hear about that. Tell us. Because like Judaism is supposed to be like kind of private, your passion, 
um, it's not a hobby, but it's it's something very very intimate about. It. It's a very intimate form of form of of, of expression. It's something that's kind of always evolving, but to have to like do it on a performative basis and have to like represent a certain role and have to, you know, fit certain boxes for certain people and for everyone, it's kind of different. I felt like it was kind of tiresome, and I realized I, I love it so much, but I just don't want to do it professionally. I want that to be again, you know, part of you know part of something that's private, something that's more internal um and personal so i guess you could say i sold out um it's but, funny i was talking to judah michelle i'm sure you guys yeah. know and we were talking this was months ago we're actually bringing him here to englewood to, to have a store my nice little plug right now Aww. shabbat september 9th and um, so we were talking you know when i was trying to, to bring him and i told him about you know my story and we we're talking he told me his story his friends he's like no, no no you didn't sell out you bought in and that's the, and, and I love that. It's a nice little semantic. You bought in, but actually you did kind of buy in. You bought into reality. He's got phrases. Yeah. No, it wasn't good. It was like, you know what? No, it's true. It's not. You didn't sell it. You bought in. And, and I, I liked it. I liked it because I'm like, you know, it's, it's totally true. Because if I would have just kind of held out to what I was doing. Yeah. It's like a lot of my friends who were studying philosophy and doing these things in college sold out quickly. I'm like, no, nah, I'm not selling out. Like, I'm staying to who I am. But then you realize, like, I have a choice right now. I got the rest of my life. Yeah. I'm just going to stick with this, or am I going to evolve? And who you know? are the people around you that helped you through that decision? Ooh. Did you have your parents around? Did you have friends? Did you have, like, a mentor? For sure. I for sure had my parents. I don't know if I ever had, like, a, like a mentor. I felt like when I was doing Jewish work, I had a lot of people that, that I would say were mentors and doing type of Jewish work that I, that I really looked up to. Mm. But then when I was transitioning, I, I don't remember if, who I was really talking to about But there were rabbis who were like, don't do this. <laughs> For sure. Some people were like, oh, good luck. Yeah. You know, or whatever it was. But I just. No, I, they were saying, don't do this. Like, don't continue. Oh, no, no. Nobody <laughs> was telling me that. Because, no, 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 you know, no. I always think about this, especially with the pulpit, like being a pulpit rabbi, which you kind of weren't. Right. It, you, but you were a little bit like community leadership in that role of community leadership and people sort of looking to you for guidance and mentorship and things like that. The pressure, first of all, to like live up to a certain standard constantly and to basically give up the idea of having real friends. Like I always, that's such a huge sacrifice to ask when you think about rabbis in communities, the nature of friendship is to discriminate and to say certain people are of more priority to me than others. And a rabbi by nature kind of can't do that. And I find that to be such a huge sacrifice that we ask of our community rabbis. I don't know if that applied to you or you mentioned Judah and people who have seemed to be able to pull it off where they can have closer friends than others because they're not representing a singular community. Uh, but can you just talk about that for sure. a second? Because yeah. that seems to be something that yeah. is always way too much to ask of a rabbi. The, the rabbinate is, is a lonely place, especially being a pulpit rabbi, which, which I wasn't, but I went to a rabbinical school that trained you mm -hmm. to be a pulpit rabbi. And this was something that, you know, was always kind of discussed and they dealt with it and that they really tried to get your class or some you know, small class of 10 to, to become, you know, potentially like a band of brothers. So these would be mm -hmm. your friends and your confidants for when you get out there because it is lonely. How, how can you be someone's Rebosai, friend? You know? These are your friends for the rest of your life. Okay, <laughs> Them and their wives. That's it. And choose another friend. So get used to everybody yeah. here because I'm thinking of the Jewish version of a general in Band of right. Brothers, but it's like right, exactly. homiletics. So um, it's true. For me, it was more lonely in that. So picking like a Hillel is kind of like going for a residency mm -hmm. or academia. You go where the job is. Right. So there were only certain Hillels that were available that year. So mm -hmm. I was kind of lucky that I landed in Montreal, not so far from New York City. But it was hard because there wasn't like a vibrant... Um, you know, twenties, thirties, singles community. Most it's it's somewhat provincial. People who do stay there or come back after college live at home mm -hmm. in the suburbs. And it was an incredibly lonely year. My first year was really, really hard until I met my wife and we started dating like a year after I got there. Definitely very, very, uh, very lonely. Mm -hmm. um, but Hillel, you you do get in a, in a campus setting. You get to be coolish yourself totally. a little bit. You get to. You get to maintain yeah. your personality. But you don't have to do very nice, very nice, that's, very nice. You can that's sort true. of. So that's, be, a yeah, that's why I chose that's it. You could be yourself. Yeah. Right. You don't have to fit into a denominational box in right. the same way. Right. Yeah. There is a lot more Being freedom. Being normal is like more. an asset, not a liability. <laughs> like I see movies and everyone's like, oh, cool. Like you're like, you know, you get to relate. You, well, my job was to, was to be social. And that's right. how I say what I do now as a commercial real estate broker. It's kind of full circle. My job was just really to connect. Mm -hmm to Jewish students and find mm -hmm. them. Sometimes someone would be like, oh, I have a cousin or a congregant and give them a call. And you just, you give them a call and be like, hey, blah, blah, blah. We'd like to get coffee. It was really like sales and outreach. Uh, what you were selling was yourself, like the relationship mm -hmm. or the programming or Hillel, but you were trying to get them in. And that's, that was really fun. Just trying to get to know people for, for who they were. And that's a lot of what I do now mm -hmm. is, is about building relationships. So that was, that was fun. And so you were, you were able to be yourself and you were able to try to, you, you were, you were the product. 
Did you ever consider doing something more traditionally creative, like um, being a designer, a fashion designer, or a photographer or something like that? Yes, many times. I remember. Yeah. Indulge. So when I was, um, I guess, my second to last year of rabbinical school, my parents were living in Beijing at the time. They lived there for two years, 2009 to 2011. I always loved clothing i mean we could talk about i want you to ask me like where does that passion come from <laughs> something i've never like really processed where, where does that passion passion come from? From? thank you <laughs> so it's it's really interesting because it really someone would ask me like where did you learn how to dress it's a really funny answer i I'd probably say like our dress code at school of having to wear like a collared shirt in shul because that's where you learn your sense of occasion dressing is all about like dressing in the in the right context like when you go to a wedding sense of occasion you know or or something casual or <laughs> sense, it's, sense it's, of it's, occasion it's a, with an right exactly right that's what it's about like when you like nowadays in our synagogue people come in like you know joggers and polo shirts like let's give the totally, boy a sense totally of occasion <laughs> 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 that, <you know? laughs> so to me it was also like the sense of occasion honey let's give the boy a sense of occasion <laughs> I like it I was thinking about let's give that boy a sense of occasion oh god yeah. <laughs> that's more rapey but go ahead <laughs> So yes, yeah, so it was also yeah. something always in, in exciting. No, right. You learned yeah. about how to put yourself together. My parents right. would go to Europe and come back. It's okay to be a little uncomfortable. And, gas, and you could just get you, you learn about like the suit makes demand in terms of like you do. You're in a dignified place and you feel a little bit more dignified. You feel good. You feel a certain you know sense of of that whatever that is. You, you, mm -hmm. The clothing are able to help you kind of express that. Even though I went to like an all boys high school. I remember like this is so boring. It was so drab. But like getting dressed or like putting my clothes out the night before actually kind of got me excited. It was able to give a little bit of spice to the mundane. I also realized the power of clothing when I was in high school because mm -hmm. I hung out with some, with some bad kids. But you realize, like, the administrators, they weren't after me because I put myself together. I wasn't wearing those baggy pants. You realize that, like, you have control over perception. Mm. There's who you are, I guess, you know, how you, how you think people perceive you and maybe yeah, how yeah. they actually perceive you. You have control over perception, and clothing allows that. By how you present yourself. So I could present myself as like a put together kid. These were a bunch of potheads and you were doing cocaine. You were way above <laughs> Exactly, exactly. You know, so I realized always <laughs> there was something else expressive about just regular clothing. So it was always yeah. been a passion yeah. and getting custom made clothes. I remember going to. Have you, can, I, can I interrupt you? Yeah, really? go ahead. Have you always had that like sense of like that thing you said about you have control over how people perceive you? Have you always had that eye of like. Like when you said that, I thought of Roy Cohn, that lawyer, like Trump's lawyer from New York. Not necessarily in a bad way, but there are certain people who like understand that everyone's looking at them and there are ways to manipulate man, or, or like they, they, they see the world in that, in that, from that, with that lens of like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that, it's emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm very good at it and I'm sure a lot of people probably perceive me in a lot of different ways that I wish they didn't. But I think I definitely understood that you do have... You do have, yeah, that's, I think, understanding where you stand with people, trying to read people, you know, mm. not what they're saying, but why they're saying it, um, which is a lot of what I do in yeah. my work to really understand people, or especially in the rabbinates, really all you do is understand why people are saying it. I think that's all about that, about that perception. Where'd that come from? Is that like a family thing? I, I don't, I don't know. That's, you know, I don't know. I think that was always probably my, my skill. I wasn't great at school but the teacher, oh he's very bright he's very bright uh -huh. it wasn't like the you know i wasn't like the best student but um i don't know i think that's kind of like a sixth sense or something you realize that you have or or like i realized that with like in school that if you get along with your teachers or your professors not, law school is totally on a curve and this didn't work i mm -hmm. wish it did but if if you if, if, if you can kind of control, you can get them to think that you're smart by going to them during office hours or when they like grade your paper, they're going to be like, oh, Ben Vigo, smart guy. Oh, I'm reading this from like a smart lens. I kind of realize that the relationship mm -hmm. itself is super, is super helpful. And that's how we deal. Yeah. That's how we deal with humans mm -hmm. and not just in terms of your mental and brain capability. Does that make sense? Yeah. So as someone who, yeah. I had a question. I'll go for this. it. Go for um, it. Yeah. As someone who, uh, connects so emotionally to clothing <laughs> to the point where you're an addict, which we could talk about. <laughs> but no, no, the, the Michael asked this question earlier about thinking about it as potentially more than a hobby because for someone who understands the impact apparel has on other people and to you personally, and I think part of it is also you just really liked it. You liked getting dressed, you liked collecting these different things and having... How many glasses do you own? Oh, man. I have a lot. 
I, I've got them boring. I probably only rotate amongst a few, but still have a very large collection of at least 40. 40 pairs yeah. of glasses. Well, I thought you were going to say more. Me too. I don't know. I think I've probably <laughs> thrown them out. Not probably just have like the vintage pairs I've been collecting. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. A lot. But, but anyway, did you ever consider it as like FIT, fashion? There's very few men in this space. And I'm curious and I'm forget, forget the fact that sure. you're a man, but like, Thinking about it as a potential option for a career. So totally. So what I was and getting, maybe it's still yeah. in your future. So what I was getting back to is that when I was my parents living in China, mm. so I would go visit them, and then I met someone who like you know you went going I get custom made clothing. So I, I met someone who does ads, like a Jewish guy who lives it was living there full time. He's from South Africa and he had a business. And so I had something made. I made some referrals. I'm like you know, let me just do this. Like I could do this. This is like when menswear was such a having such a moment in, mm-hmm. in that in that you know 2009. And custom clothing. Pe- also. Yeah, people were like getting it from Master and Black. And this was like another type of those companies. I'm like you know what? Let me just do this. I know people. I can learn how to measure. Is this Twillery or this is pre-Twillery? Probably around know. the same time. Yeah. Like Twillery. 2009. <laughs> yeah, 2009. I was having yeah. a real moment. It yes. was very affordable. Like for yeah, five hundred dollars, you can get a custom made suit. Yeah, I bought an you awful suit. An awful suit. That blue one. Um, Navy. No, that was from the suit lady. But the same idea of like this woman opened up and it like revolutionized T-neck fashion. Sure. She opened up something Beforehand, in her we were all getting abused basement. in Nordstrom for our bar mitzvah. Yeah, no, Sims. Sims. Nathan, oh. Nathan Borlams? Come on, you guys didn't grow up in Nathan Borlams? No. no. But the idea is you go to Sims yeah. and your mom is like, it fits him. Right, right. And, and, you, and you're you, like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. This is fine. He's a 38. Right. Yeah, you put your suit on your waist. Like, no, no, no. You wear them up here and they pull it up. And to some your Italian body. guy yeah. just yeah. molests yeah. you. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. That's when we realized that like fit was was so important. Yes. That's what's going to make clothing. A suit has three components probably. The actual fabric, the construction, what's inside the guts. the first time I put on a jacket that was the right size. Well, after my yeah. romance, I was like, good. oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I felt like the hormone monster. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, so, yeah. So, I was doing so that on the side. I started, started doing that on the side. You know, that from was a, that was a gig? China? Was that, a was like a, that was like a side hustle. No. So, you would just, you have the fabrics and then you go measure people and you mm. help them pick and how to design the suit. You send the measure. So, you send the measurements. This was there. side hustle while you're in rabbinical school? While I was in rabbinical school. Okay. Was it the happiest you have ever been? It was so much fun getting down your knees and measuring someone. No, but you doing something like fashion turning into real. Yeah, it was fun. But then you're like, okay, but. You know, you're you're a, you're a middleman per se, and then I would go there and I made some pocket squares and I brought them back and I was selling some cufflinks and this and then always thinking like, could I actually do it? But to really, really do it is a whole other level. Mm. Remember, like, oh, I'm you know I'm gonna maybe continue to do it, and someone's like, wait, you're gonna be a rabbi, and you're gonna be like getting down on your knees and like measuring people, like it's just not you know. My grandfather not so used graceful. to talk about his haberdasher. Yeah, you yeah. need to find it. My grandfather would say, Ami. Find yourself a haberdasher. <laughs> so, so what I was doing wasn't really like like a career. It was a nice little side hustle. How am I gonna, yeah. you know, make this into something big? And I dreamed, and it was always really what would you hard. Call it a sense of occasion. Sense That's of occasion. your brand. It's it's funny because hearing you talk like that, the people I know who did go into full time creative yeah. things, they, they're me included. They're missing that sensibility of like, this is cool, but what am I doing? It's it's like it's like this is cool. I'm gonna be a billionaire, yeah. well, and then the, and so then they just hard. go yeah. like like you you it's had so that hard. you had that thing in your head. So you're that's, a designer at Barney's. That's and Barney's is closed. I mean, like yeah. all that type of retail and fashion to be a designer, it's really hard to make it, and then to actually make a living off of it yeah. is so hard. So, so my your wife, Jew brain won out on that one. So yeah, yeah. Like, like now like my wife is in is in apparel. She manufactures you know clothing, and you realize that um, I don't. She, I always attribute to like her grandfather like as kind of a myth, but there's a line, you know, sell to the rich, live with the poor, sell to the poor, live with the rich. Meaning like, where are you making money? You're making money selling it to, to Walmart and, and Wait, Target. It, it does make sense. Wait, wait, say, volume, say sell to the rich, live with the poor. Meaning like, oh, I'm a fancy designer, but what rich, are my margins? Live with the poor. What are my margins? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say it one more time. Sell, sell to, to the rich, live with the poor, sell to the poor, live with the rich. Yeah, Meaning yeah. I'm just trying to do volume at low cost or whatever it is. That is so And that's evil. where I'm really going <laughs> to make the money. <laughs> what does Syrians do? You sell underwear? The CEO, you're the CEO of Walmart yeah. or you're like designing clothes for the rich. Right. So you realize yeah, like yeah. where you're going to make money in that business isn't doing the sexiest of things and so like it's not really what I wanted to do. and I, I kept on thinking about doing it he's even too rational Montreal, that's the thing you had too much of a I rational about it, I, I had I, ideas I, but it was just like I want to even like, am I going to make a living off of this it's, it's just it's but so it's not hard to take that jump you didn't, you didn't have this 
burning desire to to make something out of that part of yourself. It didn't feel real. Do you know that feeling of like when you have an idea or something comes to you or someone says, oh, I'm going to do this. And then you tell all your friends about it because it's not real. It was really, really way to kept it to heart. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of flops. Mm kind of felt like it was this amazing idea, but like it didn't feel like, oh, I'm I'm actually really going to execute it. Because I don't know if I ever really had such a plan, having a business plan and, you know, working that financial model is a whole different thing. But you didn't go back to campus and live every day miserable that you weren't designing and making clothes. No, because it was okay. still a passion. You know, I was going vintage shopping and doing this. And it was always a passion. It's a part hobby, of your life, but you didn't need it to be a part is. of your professional right. life. But exactly. And that's what I realized about the rabbinate same is thing that happened with same that. thing when you realize like, oh, everyone wants to make their hobby into, you know, into, into a career, but maybe not. Maybe mm. my hobby is my hobby and I love it for that. And then I do something else. And that's where law school came in. Even though I knew that I wasn't going to be an attorney the rest of my life. It was really not the right career for me. It was a clean slate. Mm-hmm. A way to start fresh. It's hard to just like apply to an MBA school. What's my story to tell? Mm-hmm. But my story to tell law schools was actually quite compelling. Mm-hmm. I talked about law and Jewish law and, you know, doing community work and all the volunteering and, and you know, and, and social justice work that I did. And it exploiting labor easy, in China. Exactly. Yeah. It was a very and easy story to tell. And not a lot of Jews go to law to school, which is helpful. <laughs> So even when I went to law school, I always knew I wanted to work in the real estate industry. So you I did. looked for internships. Yeah. You know, in, in my first summer, I was, you know, I, I worked at, at Extel Development, which is a very large real estate developer. And then I worked at But you at had to be firm. on the legal side of that? If you felt like law school, you had to do that and not just jump into real estate? In some I felt like the- if you're going to go to law school, I felt like- Were mean, you like school? Before, I liked school and it was fun. It was exciting. Um, you have a thing. You have a fetish for credentials. I, I, yeah, I, I do. It's probably out of my very deep insecurities. <laughs> I don't know if this couch is big enough to really go there. But you do but have a. You like. I have. I like. This, yeah, you like the I process. Like I, I did a master's Degrees. also when I was in Montreal in in, in Jewish studies. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, focused on Jewish thoughts. Yeah, hundred mm-hmm. percent. Definitely like knowledge. But I did. I felt like you know what? Even if I don't want to do law forever, let me do it for like four years to gain some expertise that I'll be able to carry on to when I go to the business side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's incredibly sensible. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like? Going to law school and then being at shul on Shabbat and at Kiddush and people are like, oh, Ben's going to be a lawyer. Like, like that, that understanding of they don't get what I'm doing and I just have to withstand these four years of being misunderstood. It was more like you're living in the city and your whole shul is about like making money and you're in your potential state first and are people really viewing you for who you are? Maybe it's my own personal insecurity. That was hard. Like being like 30 and people are starting to really start their Mm -hmm. careers. And I realized like, oh, wait, so my friends are going to be like partner in two years. Like, where am I going to be like a first year associate? Like I'm really starting as a cog in the wheel at a very beginner level like do i really want to do this like that that was definitely something then reality really right. kicked in and school was exciting but when you were your friends they were like oh you know in, in terms is, of status you can't yeah. you went from like being someone of status to being someone of no oh, status I was an intern like after my yeah. first year and it was like yeah i did it, it was it was soul wrenching it, it hurt being at the bottom but you know what it's a good experience it's hard to tell someone it's really good to be miserable in your job for for a long time because when you do find what you know what you love oh wow you're gonna really appreciate it. but that's the story of the jewish people right holocaust israel you know you know egypt but like that's a hard thing to really tell but i did experience so- that you went from yeah. enriching people's souls on campus to draining your own yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right but now again where i where i sit now living here my involvement in the community i'm actually able to do a lot of things yeah. you also um, knew Jewish what you were doing I love you right? weren't doing you it out of being lost you were focused yeah. like, you kind of yeah, did you I, have that perspective yeah sorry yeah. just same same question i think i did i think i realized like this is my story this is where i'm supposed to be right now mm-hmm. like i remember doing things always at different times so i finished high school after three years and went to israel early in the early missions because like mm-hmm. i don't want to be a senior i was kind of done with that i hated high school so i was kind of like the youngest and then kind of did my thing not mm-hmm. like the normal paces and then i was like you know then i was like the oldest i really that's my story you have mm-hmm. to take ownership over that like sometimes it's hard that people are, are here and you're there but i always kind of knew like i was going to do my own thing didn't get married at you know 22 23 24 it was all going to be you know, when I want to, but again, living in the Jewish world, as we're going back to and having all those pressures, sometimes it's, it's hard to kind of do your own thing when you're not really always taught to like do your own thing. And you have like, um, for someone who, who has that perspective or perspective on everything, you, you also have like an appreciation for the Jewish community and like the, the thing that we kind of rail against, I feel like you have like a good taste for it. Like the guy 
who's who's who like sells cheap uh whatever like uh advances cash advance or whatever that me and ami are like oh god how are we gonna have a conversation with this guy you're like you're like give it to me like i want to talk to you i want to like i came i came full circle on that yeah. i was definitely I, had a chip on my shoulder a like oh, the guy who just makes some money like selling hair pieces but makes like billions like you're kind of like uh yeah, yeah, but like right? you, there's no yeah, sophistication. You have an appreciation for it. It took me a long time. I was definitely very snobby about that. I thought you had to, uh-huh. you know, do certain things and, and be educated. But now they're like, people are like, wait, you're a real estate broker? That's like the complete opposite thing of the trajectory you were on. I think you get to a certain age and you realize, like, you know what? Everyone's different. Who really cares about all that status and education? Like, we're, it's not just I'm making money, but like you can realize, like, the guy is just trying to earn a living, and that's that's who he is, and like that. That, that's okay too. You kind of appreciate the different paths, the different trajectories of well, human beings. Your relationship to the community at large is very unique because you're like, you can't stand it and you're obsessed <laughs> with it at the same time. Uh, that's Great. that's that's something to, to to really. You're like the Lord Baelish of Judaism. No, that's what I tell. You're, you're totally right. Like, I, yeah, <laughs> you're like. In the chaos, this rabbi, that rabbi, right. this one's collapsing, this one's going this way, this one's going this way, purging this, and you right. just, you love the I, chaos, I, I'm and always, then walking through the yeah. ashes at the end like, I saw this coming. Yeah. And like, you also at one point owned a whorehouse. <laughs> um, yeah. That was in Beijing. Um, I don't know where that, no, that's, but that's something to, I, you I don't are, know. Like, yeah. You were like, I, I can't, I can't, you cannot divorce yourself from this world. I know. And, 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 it, and, and you say, can't stand yeah, it. I know. Yeah. It's, and it's, I love talking yeah. about that because- you have a yeah. bird's eye view of things because you've been in these different corners of like, you know, the, from now you're in real estate, but you were in the rabbit side, but not fully in it, like kind of able to right. watch. But it. I trained, I can think like one because I was trained to think like one. I try to. Right, but you're a Judaism that. junkie. Yes. You're, you're like a, the way people are political junkies or sports <laughs> junkies. They like, and they know all the teams and the stats and the it's drama. True. You know it all. Yeah, like they'll, <laughs> they'll watch a game that they have no, like they have no team in. You're like, you'll, you just yeah. want to be with a Jew. You're just and you're sports betting, but no one knows what team. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know where all that comes from because I'm like amazed at myself sometimes. Like, wait, I'm still like in it. Like, I could have I could have left it so many times because of all <laughs> the things that I still see. But yeah, I'm still there. I think about where that comes from. Um, I, I I think I grew up in a community where like you know you did because you did and you were kind of forced to do. It. Like, I went to all boys high school. We had school on Sunday and like Friday I had to be at services in the morning and and then definitely you know on Shabbos. Um, and then you kind of look back and you realize like, you know what, like I went to like more right wing institutions and like my, my family life and I was forced to always be present. You go, I'm thankful for that because it gave me a chance to be who I am. If you're not shown all that, like I look at all these parents who don't force their kids to come to shul. Mm-hmm. And because of COVID, we lost like a whole, like we lost teenagers. They didn't mm-hmm. go and now they don't go. Like, you're not giving them a chance. Like if you want to like find your place in it, if you want to sculpt out your, your spot, you have to have like Something a real connection or a real, like you have to have that pillar of, of text and, 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 and connection. If you don't have it, you don't, you don't have a chance. So for me, it was always kind of like, I don't like what you're throwing, throwing down my throat, like in school and the teachers, but I do sense that there's something very special here. My rebellion is not going to be to reject it because that's just easy. Mm-hmm. The real rebellion is to deep dive and figure out how you want to live your life that way, what's meaningful to you, and then come up with a model that mm-hmm. makes sense for you. To me, that's what a real rebellion is, and that's really what I've tried to do. It's to throw myself in and then figure out for myself how I want to live, you know, my life in that way. And then, so that's why I really, really dove in that. Probably the truth is sometimes I, I think about it. The reason I went to rabbinical was I was really just figuring it all out. Mm-hmm. And I want to spend years figuring it all out. And that gave me the ability to be like, you know what? I don't have to listen to the rabbis. Mm-hmm. I'm going to fucking become a rabbi. Mm-hmm. And so like, mm-hmm. I'm going to have, you know, that authority, that ability to make decisions for myself and not just be reliant on someone. So I think that's what really, what a real rebellion is, is taking ownership over it and being able to be creative. Because if you don't have the tools, if you don't know, how to draw, like, then what are you doing? Just like throwing, you know, shit around. Mm, the only right. way to really be creative is to actually have the necessary tools. So that makes like sense. Like a Jedi. You know? Yeah, very a well Jedi. said. That's well said. Very well yeah. said. I, no, go ahead. How did you go from force-fed Judaism mm. in, all, in, in the way it's packaged and delivered to us to someone who actually chooses it, likes it, and like likes Torah and learning in ways that I still struggle with today because it gives me PTSD from having to sit through so much forced experience. It's, it's, it's complicated. I mean, I, I think about high school mm. and being at MTA and having Yeshiva University right there and having the base medrash like in the same building. 
I probably spent more time in basement marriage in high school than in college. Because in college, I just wanted to like be a college kid and do other things. But in high school, I, I looked up to these people. I, I thought that what they were doing in their basement marriage or seeing them walk around, Base you know, like this. Is the place of study at the university, like the, university, the study just hall. Just for those who are. There's that one non-Jew who watches. Sorry, it's a library. It's a library. Sorry, Kyle. Um, so in the library. Kyle is you know, real so, estate. <laughs> so I saw like they were searching so for that. authenticity. Yeah. You yeah. saw it in their eyes. Was it real? Was it something superficial? You know, whatever. Was it really brainwashed? Mm. I saw that they were searching for something authentic. And as a high school kid, just living in like the mundane, and, and you know, your parents and school, and and it just kind of felt like at that stage, at an earlier stage, I was mm. really searching for connection. And, and meaning mm-hmm. and I kind of saw like oh maybe it's maybe that maybe it's there at that point you're searching for like capital T truth mm-hmm. and I thought like in Judaism it's there so even though I wasn't enjoying like the rabbis in school um, but I felt like you were seeing that at YU I was seeing that as yeah, a high school yeah and I said you know what I'm gonna leave high school early mm-hmm. and I'm gonna go on my search mm-hmm. and I went like I went like on my search and I went when to Israel a year early she skipped senior year so I skipped school? senior year I did early missions to YU so like I was in college and I just you know Went, to, went you know, on the huh. Israel program and I went on my search and I was studying and I definitely had a, a Huck Hotel. I definitely had a lot of stages and cycles and trying to figure it out and they had all these expectations on me and who you're going to be and dealing with that, you know. Did you go as like the kid who was going to end up being like more from, more observant, more serious? Or, or, or were you kind of this like kind of weird wild card? I know. I think I superstar kid. I was not a superstar kid because like learning is hard and sitting on your on your on your on your butt for that many hours is hard and like learning Talmud like is really really challenging. I, I just started learning again today. I'm like, oh you know I'm gonna I'm gonna do uh you know Daf Yomi, the page a day. I'm gonna do it. And you do you're like, oh my God, this is like so not relatable. It's not speaking to me. This is what you do all day. It's so hard. And it's not my brain. It's not like that doesn't lend towards my strength. But people always told you, oh, you're going to be the guy who never leaves and stays here. And, mm-hmm. and so you kind of deal with like that, like perception of what people think of you, but you realize that you're not that. Yeah. And you kind of have to kind of like shed off all of that and find your place. And that's a, that, that, that's a process, yeah. you know? And so I stayed for a couple of years and my parents moved to Israel. So I went to Bar Ilan University and that's where I kind of found my place in like or like academic Jewish studies. I was studying Jewish history and seeing Judaism from a different lens. And once you start to peel off the layers of truth and see things from a more scientific method, it does a lot of different things to you. And so it was a whole process to kind of figure out. Um, that was satisfying your secular thirst for knowledge with a Jewish flavor. Yeah, too. looking at Judaism from a different angle, not seeing it from capital T truth, uh, um, seeing you start realizing how subjective a lot of it is. Hmm. And that kind of created a different process of trying to figure out um, how to make that meaningful in my life. And you realize you're using too much of your brain. You got to use more of your soul. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a complicated process to kind of find your place. And then going to YU and then being like, you know what? Like, I'm not that guy who I thought I was going to be. That is not my Judaism. The Judaism of the rabbis there, you know, centrist Orthodox is not what I want. I started leaning a bit to the left, to an Orthodoxy that was grounded, but also appreciated kind of, being more thoughtful and questioning and not taking it for granted. So I kind of felt myself leaning in, in that direction. So if someone, fi- if someone's listening and they find themselves in a career that they know isn't for them, but they don't have the wherewithal to make a, to make a change, it's hard to make a change. whether cause they think they're too old or they you don't know, have the money successful hard. or the money yeah. or whatever it is. What, what it, it, it sounds like to you, the, the ability to change came very naturally, which I think is like a real gift. What would you tell someone like that to do? You got to talk. You got to talk to people. You know, every time I went through into the transition, I always had a lot of conversations with different people. When I was thinking about what else is there in the Jewish world that I could do, just kind of work for foundation, go into fundraising, federation work. You always got to find people um, to talk to. Even when I was looking at law school or what to do afterwards, you got to talk to a lot of people and have a lot, a lot of conversations. And that always kind of helps you have, have, have clarity. Remember when I was in law and practicing for four years, I'm like, I hate this. This is so not me. It feels like every morning I'm having this panic attack because I have so much homework for like the subject that I hate. That's what it felt like. Yeah, I, know like, I hate this and I'm just writing this report and I have to and they're asking me where it is and it's always due. And it's just like, I don't want to do this. Like I learned a lot, but it's not playing towards my stream. Being well-rounded is important. That's why you go to a college that has like a core curriculum. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want to study biology, like it, it, it is important, but you realize like you want to, you want to like, you, in order to be happy, I think you do have to feel like you're good at what you do, and you have to love what you do, right? So I realized, like, I don't want to do this. I want to go into real estate, but also not like really like a numbers guy. It's like, what, what, what should I do? 
So I spoke to a lot of people who, do, who buy real estate and they do acquisitions and they model and they do all the numbers. And I spoke to a lot of people who were brokers because that always felt very much like me in sales. And I realized that that's kind of the direction I wanted to go in because of my lack of appetite for risk. Just kind of felt like that was my direction. But you got to talk to a lot of people mm-hmm. um, and find the right people and, help, and find people who could also make important introductions because that's also super important. So right. you got to spend time thinking and you got to spend time you know, talking to a lot of people. It doesn't sound like you dwelled too much on perceiving different things as failures or when you change to a new thing, but rather just being able to button up these chapters neatly. Seemingly to me, it's like, okay, done with this. Lawyer, I don't like this. Going to this. Because sometimes people do make the mistake of falling into this pattern of, of too much change, not seeing things through through the difficult times. Like right. maybe as a lawyer, you could have gotten, I'm just being hypothetical, but somebody in your position hated those four years, but then gets to fifth year, mm-hmm. sixth year, and they find a groove. And you pivoted to something else. In your case, it seemed to work out. Um, so I'm just wondering, were you, am I right in perceiving that you looked at each thing as, as self-fulfilled and, and, and sort of neatly wrapped up in their proper place in your in Yes, I think it's about evolving and really have to understand yourself. But it, it's funny to say because like when I was younger, I felt like I changed. I went to two elementary schools, you know, two high schools. But then, you know, when I got to, I guess I started at Bar-Line University, but then I went back and I went to YU and mm-hmm. I wanted to go to NYU. I'm like, you know what? I, too much change. Stick it out. Yeah. I toughed it out. Right. Even as a coach, I wanted to leave yeah. early. I'm like, you know what? Tough it it's out. It's a dangerous and I did a of lot a curious of, temper. I did a lot did of things and I toughed it out. telling you, no bends, <laughs> My parents, stay. Yeah, yeah, stay. Sounds like Don't you have great parents, honestly. Thank you. That's what it sounds are. like to me. Yeah. Stick, yeah. stick it out, you know, and, and, I, and I stuck it out. Hot hotel was the right thing to do. Why you? I stuck it out. Rabbinical school I wanted to leave almost every year was very okay. hard for me. I didn't really fit into the mold of like this is a rabbinical school. Right, now, now I kept on there we go. I kept on thinking, <laughs> like, you know, should I should I should I leave? And I had mentors or you know who, who said you don't stick it out and there is yeah. a path for you and you have something unique to offer. So I definitely did a lot of also toughing it out yeah. and that's important. It's, but it's interesting. So you, you have, have the know. impulse. You had the impulse because having a hyper curious temper yes. like you do, I'm interested in so many things. Risks, never trying anything fully enough right. to. A, to see it through. It's right. I had it. a lot of majors, you know, yeah. like, oh, what do you want to do? It's like a million pass. And it was like right. so hard. So you have to kind of know yourself, know when to stick it out mm-hmm. and know when to evolve. Because mm-hmm. I do actually feel like what I do now is really come full circle. I'm in real estate, um, being, being, having been a real estate attorney, super helpful because of the value add, meaning I understand contracts when we get there, I understand, you know, deals. And I can get, I'm not just like some sales guy passing around emails. Like I, I have nuts and bolts and expertise that I can, you know, help advise. I'm an advisor. You know, that's what yeah, I do. What do you do? You buy and you, you sell buildings on behalf of owners? I represent sellers. So represent I, I'm sellers. the broker, I represent sellers, uh-huh. and I help them market and sell their buildings. A lot of that is really pricing it. Someone says, I'm thinking about selling. Well, we have to figure out what it's worth. Right. It's market. So we look at all the numbers and, you know, your rental income and all your expenses. And then we think about what's the, you know, what's the market rate of return? What's the cap rate? And that's always evolving. It's evolving right now as interest rates are going up. Right. And so I, you know, help them do that. Um, and that's fun. So I get to kind of, you know, look at the numbers um, and then work with people and gain their trust, advise them. And then I get to sell and selling is calling and, and meeting buyers, knowing buyers. And, you know, and the even, ultimate goal is just to have a reality show. <laughs> Definitely. Well, the word interest rate sends me running through the hills if I hear that because yeah. I just go, oh, what is that? But yeah. no, it's, uh, and, you, and, and yeah. you're able to enjoy it. You feel like you're not. I love what I do. It's uh-huh. the first time I felt that I say you should know what it's like to tough it out because I know what it's like to not enjoy what you do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I'm okay with that. I'm, yeah. I'm thankful for that experience, but I'm really glad that I love what I do. But what I do is scary too. I don't have a salary. Mm-hmm. Make money off a commission. That, that could be really scary. You yeah. know? I got it. But it's also kind of exciting because sky's the limit. You know? And you have, in the time we have left, talk to us. You have a, a, an Instagram account. You're like a content creator, right? I try a little bit. I, I dabble. It's something that... Um, I thought about it for so long. Like, how come I don't have a blog? Like, oh, where's your blog? When yeah. blogs became Wait, so what a thing. Is, yeah, sorry. So I, I post my yeah. outfits almost every day um, under, uh, you can find me um, at sartorial underscore Rain Man. Um, the reason why like, it's, it's uh, so sartorial because, you know, relating to clothing, the Rain Man is because, so I have a lot of relationships with like a lot of these boutiques or small stores that kind of sell the brands that I like. So I don't like big brands. I'm not wearing Gucci, Prada, whatever. Mm-hmm. I like discovering brands that are really small <laughs> it's mystical it's about concealing you know it's it's revealing the concealed there's like there's there's like always things that people don't know about and i love getting involved in these types of subcultures like i wear this one super brand from japan that most people haven't heard of now it's mm. a little more popular but then or like japanese denim all these brands that like no one knows about but once you get into that 
there's only two stores that sell them. There's a whole world and a subculture and Reddit and Instagram handles. You like know, tourists who say, oh, Inst- here's the tourist spots you yeah. go to, but you're the guy on the street. Yeah, so I'll take you yeah, to the best spot. And it's like there's something exciting about discovering something that exists that a lot of people don't know about. Mm-hmm. And there being, you know, um, a whole world. So there's some of these stores and I go and who do I talk to? I talk to all the guys who work in the store about stuff because most people – you know, aren't as interested in how wide the lapel is and mm-hmm. this and that. And so they come in the rain. I could look at something and like know the measurements. Oh, that, that, that's that, you know, this length and lapel is that width. And oh, that's that brand. I know from, you know, how that little thing there. So he called me the rain man at one of these stores I go to. So that's how I did it. But like, I always the thought rain about man, like, like rain, Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. Like the rain man, like, you know, like you, you yeah. know, have like a weird like, yeah, sense. Yeah. Japanese suit. Like yeah. <laughs> Japanese suit. <laughs> you know, yeah. Hot water for baby. Is, you know, oh yeah. That's that. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, all so. time I looked at a guy's <laughs> shoes on Shabbos and shoe and I'm like, oh, that, those are Carmina, like a small like Spanish brand. There's like one store in Manhattan no one knows about. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, it's that last, that shape. It's called the Rain Last, you know, different sizes, you know, shapes. He's like, how'd you know that? I'm like, it's coming with the Rain Man. That's, so that's if, somebody, if somebody so, spilled thousands of shoes on the floor, you could count them all? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So me, <laughs> shoes. Yeah. So blogging is hard. It's a big commitment and you're putting it out to the world. Wait, you gotta write something you in this You send me some stuff, that. but you're blogging every day? So I put pictures no, up not, on Instagram. It's just easy. Instagram Blog is hard. So you just go on Instagram. Yeah. You post a picture. Oh. You tell a story. It's still a little short story. Yeah. It's so much How easier. How many followers? Yeah. Not so many. Only like nine nine hundred twenty something. That's a lot. Like, I mean, it's been doing it for a few years. I'd love to see it grow. I complained yesterday that I think the Instagram, you know, um, uh, algorithm is kicking my ass because yeah. I'm like, why when I post something on my personal page that has half the amount of followers, mm-hmm. I'm getting like How triple the amount. How many do you post? I post a few times a week. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, they're definitely. I mean, from what people say, images are not doing as well. So you have to do boomerangs. Uh, the reels, yeah. the reels are doing yeah. better now, yeah, but that yeah. also seems but like a again, lot of work. But again, you can't think about that. And, find know, a spot stuff. where this kind of keep it easy, work. and it's yeah. fun. It's just like fun. Mm-hmm. It's just fun. It's easy. Yeah. You know, I think you so. should drop everything else you've ever done and do this. Yeah, that's what Thank I you. was gonna say. <laughs> Terrible yeah. idea. I know, right? Yeah. There's so many other things. We're running out of time, but I wanted to talk about just to throw it out yeah, there. Yeah, go like, for it. Um, it like uh, first of all, side note for fun. Do you find that like the Orthodox community of Jew, Jewish Orthodox community in particular has gotten more fashionable, gotten more into the finer things. Like in this current generation of things, you're starting to see like Chabad who wear like, like, you know, who are like the spitzy factor, which is like, you know, mm-hmm. Yiddish term for just fashion, like looking fashionable. I found that there's been this evolution very subtly of, of, Orthodox Jews liking the finer things. Charcuterie boards galore. Wine, yes. 100%. What yeah. type of wine did you drink at home as a kid? White Zinfandel or like... Russian. Dosti. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Kedem. And then all these things started to develop. Why? Is it because people became more comfortable mm. with their affluence or money that they had and they weren't as scared? So they said, you know, I'll spend a little more. Like maybe our parents' generation, maybe their parents didn't have as much money as them. And so yeah, I got to save everything, mm-hmm. right? But now people are a bit more comfortable and so they're starting to spend a little more. Yeah. I think, yeah, people That's are definitely it. feeling more secure and spending a lot more, um, feeling a bit more nouveau riche, a bit mm-hmm. more upper crust and want to kind of uh, Food, enjoy clothes. those things. It's happening yes. across the world. Enjoying enjoying it's not just the deli yes. and a steakhouse. It's like right. we're doing yeah. Vietnamese it, fusion. It's yeah. the internet also. Like When, yeah. when we right. were kids, if yeah. you wanted to buy a well-fitting suit, right. you if unless your parents took you there, you could not buy one. Right. Like, so suiting Instagram has totally like really created this whole boom because there's always tailors in Napoli. Mm-hmm. They do you know, these handmade tailors make these very expensive, well-made suits all by hand. You know, mm-hmm. fatto a mano, as they say in Italian, you know, all, you know, completely by hand. But you didn't know about them. But Instagram, mm-hmm. you're able to now know about everything. So it's really opened up a lot of things that were very small and niche are now becoming so much more accessible. And right. Yes, that's definitely social media and, and, and uh, the internet. Mm-hmm. I had one really bigger question, and it might just pivot everything into a serious place that will take us another hour. He's got time. Let's yeah. go. Where I got to be. Think about this a lot with like institutional Judaism versus personal and the difference between people being religious versus observant. In the Orthodox community that we come from, I find that observance might persist, but being religious doesn't so much. Maybe the opposite, too. Maybe yeah. No, that people... people don't think about too many things. They just do the things that are prescriptive yeah. to them to maintain a certain thing, and it's like fitness. Like, yeah, we show up to shul, show up to synagogue every Friday, every this, we do the high holidays. But Jewish consciousness, I guess we can sort of end here because you come from this world, and I'm sure have a lot to say about it. Like, this idea of Jewish consciousness, which is like the ends, not just the means. Do you feel like we're, like everything is lacking in that department? Or what's the state, according to you, what is the state of, of the union on that? It's interesting. I think identity is a lot more fluid. Mm-hmm. People don't care as much about like being in or out mm-hmm. or denominational label. Like, how do you describe, people ask me, how do you describe yourself? It's like, 
well, the shul I go to is Orthodox, so like I'm Orthodox, but what does it mean in terms of I have all these exact beliefs and I believe exactly this about this and that? People don't care anymore. And it's just like it's it's just it's more about community affiliation. Mm-hmm. It's the shul you go to or the shul you don't go to that you walk past is mm-hmm. is your affiliation. I think people are are also just very apathetic for whatever reason. Yeah. They're not really thinking about these things. I, I don't I don't know why. Mm-hmm. It's the end um, times. Pardon? It's the end. It's the end, yeah. That's what happens. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I have any, you know, brilliant thoughts on that, but um I, I, I think that people just aren't as aren't as engaged. Mm-hmm. Um they're burnt out. They're not as interested in you're right, in 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 observance or 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 searching and things. But I think COVID actually changed that. People are just kind of going and going like, okay, you know, you go to high school, you go to yeshiva and you get religious and you kind of like have your kids and you kind of mold and you get lazy and you kind of like tune out of like that search. It becomes tiresome. Mm-hmm. You just kind of just want to be instead of always thinking about who you should be. It gets kind of exhausting. You kind of get into a mode. But it's stable. And you get a little, yeah, it's stable. But then you realize like uh, you've kind of removed yourself and the apathy just starts to like that mold just mm-hmm. kind of builds up. And then COVID came and it was like poof, like everything's changing and people I think were searching. And so they realized that like, I don't want to go to some mega shul. I don't mm-hmm. want to just sit there. It's just sitting there and going. I don't think they found an the alternative apathy. though. Mm-hmm. It was the backyard minions and hanging out with mm-hmm. your friends. And, you know, I, I think that starting small again, going a bit more grassroots and digging in, I felt people like during COVID were forced to really think about who they are again and how right. they want to exist. And so also what, like their, what their home and their family is like. They're like, like, yeah, like I, my kids don't know anything or whatever it is. Like you're actually with your family. You're spending you're like, more time at home. Really you have to really think this. about, you know, who, you know, who you are. I mean, I yeah. always think about that. Like I feel like there is a real pressure um, to be and, and, and to know because your kids are going to see and they're going to ask. And you're going to want to be able to be in conversation with them about what they're learning and what they're doing. And you're going to want to show that you're knowledgeable and you're going to want to show them that it's meaningful Mm -hmm. because I think deep down everyone does, even the the social Orthodox and those who are apathetic Mm -hmm. do believe that there is something really special there, or maybe they don't. Maybe they're just social Orthodoxy rules. I'm a fan (laughs) of it, but I, I will say that maybe I'm projecting this concern or angst out of the fact that we're in our like mid thirties with little kids. So you're living at this weird cross section of the phase that we're in. And sometimes you project like this diagnosis of everything that's going on with the community at large by saying, are people, cause, because you're, because I'm personally just questioning, like you want your kids to have a meaningful experience and then examining your own beliefs in conjunction with theirs. Like you don't want to disrupt their development of how they're perceiving things and experiencing things, but you also want to be honest with yourself as to where you're at. It's a strange thing. It's complicated. You know, I think you want to be a strong mirror for what they want to like, you know, and I think that's how that sort of facade of adulting forms. And before you remember how like we crossed over and we're like, oh, everyone's just a big kid and they're all messes. I had no idea. (laughs) You know, as you're growing up, it's like I thought I thought everyone up here figured it out and we don't. But I think that's how it happens, because as kids, you do need a little bit of that sense of stability and identity. Yes. When you're you're starting to do it, I feel it happening where I'm like, okay, well. Whatever. Yes. What's an example? It's, I don't know. It's if interesting. I, no, I think that's very. I don't interesting. have one. Okay. No, I, prayer. You know, you're just pray, being... No, pray, pray. I think prayer is a great example because prayer. Pray. Let's just let's just say when you're a kid, you're like, why am I doing this? Like such a struggle, and I don't even know what the words mean, right. and I'm not really connecting, and I have to do this like three times a day, and then maybe you have, if you have a parent who like is taking it seriously, or looks like they're taking it seriously, and they're taking it seriously. So what happens is is that you start to develop, and you have questions, but you realize like there is something here, and that I but I need to just figure out what that is that's meaningful. I haven't found it, but but I, it looks like there is something so i'm gonna go figure it out mm-hmm. and then hopefully maybe you know you do at a certain point or then again you become a parent mm-hmm. and you start projecting you go oh wait yeah i see my kid kind of trying to figure it out okay i'm getting closer to it uh, even if you know i know i don't really have to pray all the time in order to feel connected i want to model that consistency so then you start to model the consistency for them because you know it's important Correct. and then you start to take on sometimes i think people getting more religious mm-hmm. as later in life is because either it's easy the angst that angst that psychological angst of like how am i like so idiosyncratic or like i'm you know i'm so full of crap you realize like it's okay it's part of being human like mm-hmm. you get comfortable with that angst and you could exist in your idiosyncrasies mm-hmm. you're comfortable with yourself and you say you know what I can be, I can model, I can do what's consistent, even if it doesn't always feel. So uh, it's complicated, but I think then you start to lean into it more and you realize that like, I just want to dig in. And like, I feel like even my experience of like moving to a suburb and not being in the city, it's like, Mm. I'm digging in into my community and I'm going to go to shul more and I'm going to learn more just because you feel more calm, you feel more present, you feel more grounded. 
You know, I don't know, does that answer a little bit? It, but that, I, I think it's kind of circular. What, I, what, you know? what the macro example yeah. of mm-hmm. it is that you start to dictate all of your decisions religious-wise and community-wise on your kids. Uh, right. And saying, like, I'm not finding the synagogue that I like necessarily because I'm connecting to it, but it has good groups, and my kids are uh, happy. And you want them to be, and you want them to connect to a place. And so, like, your priorities get blended with what's best for their development. Right, Even if where you were, where I was before, everything uh, was very uh, yes, youth-centric. About them. I like this show for me. It does something for me. It's right. like, well, what if there's terrible groups? Then I can't, if I can't take my kids with me every weekend to a good place where they can like have a, a solid you know, experience, it's not worth it. But that's parenting, yes. right? So much of what yeah. we do is for our kids. Living in a community here where like 1,500 people, yeah, yeah. Jews in this ghetto, yeah. is for your kids. No, not my, I, I've been saying to people, like living in a community it's like being forced to constantly socialize with people that you don't want to talk to, right? <laughs> like, like how often do you go to a meal? Like, okay, I guess I got to say yes. And then, you know, you're Who like- did your kitchen? Oh, you know, all these people are there that you're not really friends with. And now you I'm did stuck. your own kitchen? I have two days of a weekend. I, now I'm spending, you know, a quarter of my weekend with people I don't want to talk to. Yeah. And then, so living in a community, it's so much about, but in the end of the day, you realize that like, it's great for your kids. Yeah. And so now my kids have always friends over here and there. And for me, it's a little stifling. I always get So nervous. it's like, what's, you do what's best for your kids. Do you think about, do you, do you like your kids' friends? They're so little. My oldest is six. You, know? you still could know. <laughs> I yeah. always get nervous about yes putting no, your kids. You're always going to be like, this is a good one. That's a bad uh, one. You're always going to But I'm that. always conscious of like, you don't want to make yourself like miserable. Now you're doing that. You're doing that on behalf of your kids. Because eventually if you're not like feeling it, it's going to rub off. Totally. So you don't want to put their needs like above yours. You want it to be simpatico. So that's hard. Ideally, it's hard. but yeah. it's challenging. But you yeah. can't raise them in Beijing. Yeah, very hard. Any One last thoughts? question. Does anyone ever tell you you look like Trey Anastasia? I've heard that. I can't get over it looking um, at you like this whole time. I've heard that. Have you just yeah. met Vega for the first time? And I don't know if I've ever I really like looked, looked at, at you me? for this long. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, I, I had a lookalike in YU. Um, we used to call him a Van Bago. Because he was just <laughs> like me. And him. Yeah. That's pretty funny. Um... Thank you for what else? What Thank else you. This Rabbi, so doctor, yeah. lawyer, esquire, Thank you. Ben Vago. Thank you. Um, that's it for this week's episode of Buckle Up, episode 35. A pleasure talking to you, Ben. Thank you for pleasure sharing for all of your on. thoughts. Yeah. And uh, follow you at ascensification.com. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait, at sartorial. At sartorial underscore Rain Man. So Rainman, R-A-I-N-M-A-N, sartorial Rain Man. Okay. Cool. We have to tweet the user. Find me there. Make it a little easier for people to find you. you. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> And uh, if you're in the market for a building, reach out to this Give guy. A, a building or a suit <laughs> or spiritual advice. <laughs> Call Ben Vega. Yeah.